them. So uh, again, we are going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you would stand with me in reverence for God's Word. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Again, it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one in your home, please take one of those. We would love for everyone to have the Word of God in their house so they can uh, read it, call on it, and understand uh, what we're talking about in this. But let's let's begin to read uh, as we begin the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the Apostle John. I thank, I'm thankful for uh, the revelation of your word and how we can look into it and we can learn more about your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is such a blessing to know that we have a tool that is all we need for life and godliness, for all of our understanding to, to know how salvation is brought to us in Christ. Father, I pray for us that as we begin this new sermon series that you give us a thirst for the word. You give us the desire to, to seek after Christ, to, to go into the scriptures and understand what's going on, Lord. In our community groups, I pray for a greater development, of, again, of this thirst, but also of prayer and evangelism to, to, to go and share this truth as John is doing with us. Lord, I pray for greater faith and a deeper understanding as we begin this new sermon series. Help us to really walk in faith and be obedient to what Christ is calling us to. But I'm so grateful that we get to be your church that you are building us, that you are leading us, you are guiding us with your spirit, Lord. Let us be faithful. Let us be known as a place where the gospel is heralded and that people can come and understand the truth of salvation that's found in Christ. Lord, be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are four books of the Bible, many of you know. There are four books of the Bible that are referred to as the gospel. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's actually the four first books of the New Testament, but three of these four books are called, also called the synoptics. And that title comes from the Greek word that means to see together, and John is not one of those three. So there are four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are called the synoptics, and John is not one of them. All right? If you see Matthew, Mark, and Luke in actuality, follow pretty much the greater or the general outline as they lay out the events of Jesus' life. They're they're pretty much almost the same book. They just come from different perspectives or they have a, a slightly bit different structure within them. But although all four Gospels share the same message that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah and all share in the same content, all share the same truths of the Gospel and some mixture of narrative through these historical events, the Gospel of John, again, is different than the others. The Gospel of John, just if you, if you read the, one of the Gospels, if you read Mark and then you read John, it'll be obvious that they're written differently. John doesn't write down any narrative parables. He doesn't write down any parables. He doesn't write down like the prodigal son or um, the parable of the sower. John also doesn't talk much about eschatology, which is the study of end times. 
John doesn't share stories about Jesus exercising demons. There's no story of Jesus healing lepers. There's no listing of the 12 apostles, no formal institution of the Lord's Supper, in fact. John also didn't record Jesus' birth, his Uh, his baptism, his transfiguration, his temptation in the desert. He doesn't reference any agony that Jesus went through at the Garden of Gethsemane right before he went to the cross. John doesn't even talk about the ascension of Christ after his resurrection. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John does give us an immense amount of the gospel that the other three don't. There's uh, an immense amount of information about Christ found in John, this information that reveals the God-man, Jesus Christ, in an incredibly relational way. Although John is not talking about that list and many more things, John's gospel gives us so much about Christ that actually reveals Jesus in an incredibly relational way. One commentator said it like this, the first three gospels describe the events of Christ's life where the book of John emphasizes the meaning of these events which is incredible, which really is practical for us as a new church as we are processing and trying to understand how to go about and and, and lead out in evangelism in our city. And John did this for one reason, which is in fact perfectly clear. John did this for one reason and it's perfectly clear. And the reason why his motive is so easily identified is because he tells us. That makes it all pretty simple, right? Someone just tells us what they're thinking, it makes everything really easy to understand. So the reason why it's so easily identified is because John tells us why he wrote what he wrote. Near the end of the book, John tells us, this is John 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This book was written to people who don't believe so that they may now believe. This is a book about evangelism. This is a book about relationship. This is why we are doing what we are doing as Maranatha. As we're celebrating two years as a church, this is why we are doing this. This is why we planted this church. John is writing this so people who don't believe may now believe. Again, the motive of John's gospel is to teach us about Jesus Christ. John's very heart's desire is that we see the Son of God rightly, that we understand his identity and then prayerfully submit ourselves to him because in him there is abundant life. That is what's provided for us as we follow after Christ, when we understand him truly as who he is, truly as the Son of God, truly as we'll talk about the Son of Man and the Incarnation. That's when we receive abundant life. When we we talked about it in the last sermon series, when we don't just have this, this knowledge or this belief, but this trust in Christ and who he is. Maybe you remember this idea of this identity of Christ as we preach through 1 John or this, this, this testimony because John was a, an apostle. Therefore, we know that, uh, that John, since he was an apostle, he was chosen and he was trained by Jesus himself. Again, maybe you remember this from 1 John. 1 John 1 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John here is testifying to the church. He is testifying in the church that he intimately knew Jesus. 
He wants us to intimately know Jesus, but as a way of testimony to the church in 1 John, he is saying, I have walked with this man. I've touched this man. I've, 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 I've listened to him as he spoke the Father's truth. I've seen with my own eyes. I have watched Jesus heal people, and I have been so close to him that it wasn't strange for me to touch him or embrace him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm a little choked up, I guess. John knew Christ so intimately, and he was so passionate and so understanding of who Christ's true identity was that he must tell this story. Again, this is about evangelism. So what I'm getting at is that the John the Apostle, he wrote this letter from firsthand experiences. This is clear. John understood who Jesus was, and he's telling this exactly from an eyewitness's perspective. And again, through the Holy Spirit, the inspiration, he gives us information that proves without question that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. As we walk through this book, it is evidence upon evidence, proof upon proof that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the one who is our Lord and Savior. That is what we're going to go through. The Apostle John also had this brother, also named James. We talked about how Jesus has a brother James in the last sermon series, but John also had a brother named James, and Jesus, because of their fiery temperament, gave him this nickname. He called them the Sons of Thunder, right? Sounds like WWE or whatever. <laughs> the sons of thunder. And just, just because John was extremely passionate that people would follow after Christ correctly. He was fiery in the way. He said, I can't get this out fast enough. You must follow. It seems so obvious to me. Why would you do anything else? So Jesus labeled him son of thunder. And as he writes this letter, as he writes John, he, he bypasses a lot of the things that the other Gospels hold because he wants to get right to the point, and he does it with this letter as well. He pulls no punches right from the beginning. Right off the bat, John wants to make sure that the message is explicitly clear. The Gospel is about Jesus Christ and nothing else. Perfectly clear. So he begins the way he begins. Let me read the first five verses again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not over. John is simply introducing us to Jesus. What are the first few sort of questions that you like to ask people when you meet him for the first time, right? Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? These are just simple questions as a way to get to know somebody. And Jesus identified, although Jesus identified himself with multiple names, which Gave, him, gave us an understanding in a lot of ways of who he was, his most favorite name, his most favorite way to describe himself or to refer to himself was by the name Son of Man. So as John is describing us or introducing us to Jesus, Jesus' most favorite way to introduce himself was, I am the Son of Man. And that sounds sort of comforting to us, No? He's the Son of Man. We sort of hear it in our day as a way of he's, he's humbly addressing his divinity. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm part like you. I'm, I'm human like we are, again, which comforts us. But if we look into the context of who he was talking to, which was the Jewish people, they would have heard it much differently. 
Jesus purposely refers to himself as the Son of Man as he identifies himself. They would have heard him identifying himself as the one who comes from God and who is on a mission to judge the world. And they would have heard of that way because that's what the Old Testament proclaimed. They would have known when someone refers to themselves as the Son of Man, they would, their ears would perk up and say, oh boy. It's referred to directly in the Old Testament. Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 14, or 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the ancient days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus here, by calling himself the Son of Man, he was not only describing himself in, ter- himself in the term of activity, but also where he came from. He was describing his origin, just like what John is doing. This is another way that John's gospel is different than the others. The other three gospels or the synoptic gospels, as I just explained, all begin with Jesus' humanity. They begin with Jesus' ministry here on earth. But John begins what was before the beginning. John begins with what was before the beginning. Remember, John's motivation throughout this book is to present the identity of Christ to us so that it may bring about salvation in us. So therefore, where should we start? The beginning. It makes logical sense. If you need to understand the truth, you should begin with the beginning of the truth. So what's the problem that we face as we share the gospel with people? What's ultimately one of the greatest problems that we face when we are attempting to share the gospel with people? Why do people struggle to accept Jesus Christ as the Savior when we share with them how he has changed our life, how he has transformed the way that we we feel about ourselves or even this world? What is the struggle? The struggle is simply because they would have to hear it much differently. They have to hear this truth. The, the, the Jewish people, they, they, they heard this and they understood what Jesus was actually talking about. People struggle to repent and believe because in order for anyone to truly be transformed in the way of spiritual death to life, they must understand the only way to explain truth is for them to accept the fact that it was already set before the beginning of all explanation. For people to understand the, 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 the immensity, the, the, the amazing, awe-inspiring idea of truth, you first have to understand that it comes before all explanation existed. And that is why John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is where this entire gospel begins. This is it. This is what John is saying. The eternal and infinite God who created the universe became a man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to overcome the darkness that has taken his creation captive. This is what John is saying. This isn't just a summary of verses 1 through 5. This is a summary of the gospel. Let me read it again. The, in, the eternal and infinite God who created the universe became a man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to overcome the darkness that is taking captive his creation. 
John starts not at the beginning, but before the beginning. And he writes, John, as he writes, John uses the same phrase that Moses used when he was describing in Genesis how God created the entire universe. Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's literally Genesis 1.1. That's the beginning of the Bible. And again, John links what he's revealing to what Moses has already said and what was already completely accepted as truth by the Jewish people. But John says, in the beginning was the Word. And not only that, the Word was with God and the Word was God. The term John uses when he says in the beginning wasn't a term that was articulating that God started with His Word. Rather, it's a term that meant the same thing that Moses was saying. In the beginning means the source, the origin, the rule, the one in authority. So what John was making perfectly clear to these Jewish readers, the Jewish church, he's also speaking to Gentiles, but these Jewish readers in the very first verse was that the word and the one who possesses this title has always been in existence. This word is in the beginning, this idea and the way that it gets translated, this has always been in existence. This person, this word, this identifier, the identity of this person, we need to recognize has always been in existence. The word translated backwards means logos. If you've heard that before, the, term, the, the word, when we talk about Jesus, is, is translated backwards, it means logos which for the Greek philosophers spoke of this impersonal or abstract uh, principle of reason, really this, this thing that ordered the universe or it had some kind of force that uh, contained some form of or some source of wisdom. Anybody else thinking of Star Wars? So John continues on, and as we'll see in this book, he continues to unfold as he presents Jesus that Jesus is the actual personification and embodiment of this logos. Remember, the Greek find this to be very impersonal and impractical or this source of wisdom that they can't quite tangibly touch. So, Jesus, or so John brings about Jesus and reveals that he is the personification and the literal embodiment of this wisdom, this logos that they're talking about. And unlike the Greek philosophers and their lacking concepts, again, Jesus is not impersonal. They can actually meet and touch and walk with him like John did. The word, the true logos, what John is saying is that he is God who became man. This word, this logos, this powerful being of all creation that contains all wisdom is God, but he is revealed in man. This is referred to as the incarnation, right? Many of us know that. This is, Jesus is referred to as the incarnation. Another name for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we can understand doctrinally as we stand here today what that means. But the affections for this logos isn't just a Greek thing. You think of the philosophers who are waxing on about all these ideas about the universe, the, the affections for the word, the affections for the logos wasn't just a Greek thing. The Jewish people... They, they had an affection for it as well. They, 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 they saw it as divine power. They saw it as wisdom and authority because it was God's word or God's revelation. 
Because by God's word, this is how he covenanted with Abraham and later how he gave us his law as he spoke it to Moses. They saw it as powerful. They saw power in the word because when God spoke, he not only pronounced blessing, but he also pronounced judgment on his people. This is how God has, has created and ruled the universe, and the Jewish people understood that from the time of beginning. Therefore, when John makes the statement that the Word was there in the beginning, and that the Word was also God, or is also God, John is presenting Jesus as the literal incarnation of that divine power, of that divine authority, and of that divine revelation which again, they held in such great respect and longed for, for a great amount of time. They longed for this Messiah to come. They longed for this, this rescue of his people. So look again uh, at the next couple verses, verses 2 and 3. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was Made. For John, this is more or less just a, a restatement of what he just said. The word, which we now know is a person, was with God in the beginning, which logically declares that he is also eternal like God. Are you with me there? So in fact, since or, or as he is eternal, all things then had to be created through him, which again, if we continue to follow the logic, if he's the creator of all things, he therefore is also the one who determines all things to be as they are. Are you with me there? This is what John is trying to express to us. This is why he's bringing about this identification of Christ. He is trying to get us to understand that Christ is the, is the one who has created all things and therefore he is the determination or he is the determiner of all things. Now, these five verses, it was hard to try and boil down into one sermon. Really, these five verses could be a sermon series all on their own, so please try to understand that today we are simply attempting to wade into the, uh, the waters and we're going just to the edge of the depths that these uh, profound yet simple truths are bringing us into. We're just going right up to the edge of the depths and there's no doubt more and more and more that we could do as we let go, as we're led into this, and yet we can know without a doubt, this is something that we don't have to question, without a doubt, that it is simply a non-negotiable truth of the Christian faith that Jesus is the Son of God, and that He was with the Father and the Spirit at creation. Without a doubt. It's so plain, and it's so simple, and we can understand that this one true God is revealed to us as a trinity. It is, he is Trinitarian. Again, this is, much deeper than, this is a much deeper pool than we can actually swim in at this time, but the term trinity really is this an attempt of explaining the fullness of God in both terms of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Words fail how to explain the trinity, but the best way that I've ever heard it explained is this. God is one in essence and three in persons. One in essence and three in persons. You and I, as an example, are uh, one in essence and one in persons. We are human, uh, we are human, and we are individually a person. God, on the other hand, is one God and three persons, one God, three persons. So there's unity in his essence, and his diversity gets expressed in his personhood. Hopefully your community group leaders can explain that. 
One God, three persons, one unity in essence and diversity in personhood. This, again, takes us deeper, but the personhood doesn't create distinction in his essence. Rather, it shows up in the difference of subsistence. Subsistence. Subsistence is about the means of doing. The difference or the diversity that we're talking about within the Trinity is seen within the scope of what they do. They all are God, but they do different things. All three persons of the Trinity have all the attributes of being God, although we could say that those attributes have different roles. The Father, the Father initiates creation and redemption. The Son redeems His creation, and the Holy Spirit regenerates and applies redemption to believers. So why am I telling you all this? Why are we going so deep trying to look at the Trinity? Look at verse 4. Because in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus has a specific role. He has come to us for a specific reason. The Word, who is Jesus Christ, was there in the beginning. And that Word, again, Jesus Christ, wasn't just with God, but He is God. And He is the one who has come to us and has rescued us from this broken world. Now, I, have, I have written down here that this should cause us to recognize just how vile and sinful our sin is but doesn't it bring about this incredible, also should bring about this incredible emotions of awe as we recognize the power and the majesty of God and that he comes to us? What a thing to celebrate and see how wonderfully and, 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 and loving Christ is for us. Yeah, let's just see our sin and, and, and we should recognize that, but it also, when we look at our sin, we see them, the majestic embodiment of God before us in Christ. We need to recognize how bad it is. To understand this, we need to recognize how bad it is, how terrible our case is. So ask yourself the question, what have you done to deserve him? What have you done to deserve him? I'm not trying to depress you. I'm not trying to, to thump you over the head. I'm simply asking you, really, our sin is so sinful that it took the eternal God of the universe it took the creator of all things, the one who preserves all things. It takes his infiniteness of his power to wash away the sin of the world. And he willingly laid it down for us at the cost of the cross. He did it, all of that with joy in his heart for you and me. It is a glorious thing to recognize and that is why we must understand our sin. We've said it a million times. You'll never know you need a Savior if you don't recognize that you need saving. How foolish of us if we take the angle, well, won't he just forgive us for it again? Isn't he all-powerful? Yes, of course he is. Of course he will. That's the scandalousness of grace. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done that exact same thing. His infinite righteousness is enough. But how foolish of us to hang on that and say, well, won't he just forgive us again? Isn't he all-powerful? Yes, of course he is, but don't you get it? Don't we understand that? And we're seen by the repetition of our sin that for some reason we don't, we don't get it. We don't see the utter devastation of the state that we are in. We don't see that he's the only one who is capable of freeing us. 
We need to recognize your sin and my sin is far more abominable in nature than we ascribe to it. The little sins that we commit are far more abominable in nature than we ascribe to them, mostly because we can hide them. I read this week that we only measure our hearts correctly when we put them up against the dignity of the one who left his throne and came into this world to save sinners. John MacArthur says it like this, Christ, the embodiment of life and the glorious eternal light of heaven, enters the sin-darkened world of men, and that world reacted in various ways to him. This is about evangelism. The world reacts differently to Christ because he is the one who gives his spirit. We need to present the truth faithfully. We need to understand who Christ truly is and really understand his identity in order to present him faithfully. Verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of man. God is self-existent. That means that he has life in himself. And although we've been created, we were not here by accident. Although you are created, you are not here by accident. It's true in the, in the sense of common grace that Jesus Christ gave life to all of us, but Christ has also given to those who believe both life and his light. He has given us his spirit. So I urge you today, before your days end in darkness, turn to Christ. He is willing to forgive you of even those secret sins. Even those things that you're afraid to share. Even those things that you hold tightly and you know that it makes you unrighteous. You can let go of those things. Because Christ's love is perfect. And because of verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Christ already knows. And the darkness has not overcome it. That is the proclamation. That is the call to the end. Christ's power cannot be overcome. The cross cannot be overcome. And this is a common theme for John throughout this gospel, light versus darkness, uh, life, uh, life versus death. And the reason why this same theme continues to come up time and time again is because the truth of the matter is this. Without Jesus Christ, without the Word, we would all be left in darkness. No one is free from this punishment. There are no exceptions. We are all born children of wrath. Again, this is not to depress you. This is just to call about the reality of this world, the reality of our darkened hearts. To prayerfully, like John, recognize that we need a Savior. The theme of John's gospel is that the identity of Jesus the Messiah changes the way we look at life because in him we can be given new life. New life. John wants us to understand that you are only given the light of life if you place your trust in Jesus Christ's saving work on the cross. Your sin is a reality, and if you're honest with yourself, you smell the stench. If you're honest with yourself, you know you don't even live up to your own standards, let alone Christ's. But our Lord doesn't leave us in the pit of despair. He doesn't leave us there. He comes literally to us. 
That's what the incarnation means. He leaves his throne and came to us. John is telling us why this is not the case, why he doesn't leave us in despair, because Jesus is the light of the world that has, not will, has come and overcome the darkness. This is a past tense idea. This is a past tense reality that Christ has paid for your sin. You're called to just repent and believe, to to trust in him because sin is not the victor, the son of man is. Sin is not the victor, the son of man is. He has. So as we walk through this sermon series in the book of John, I pray that God gives you faith or greater faith. Just like the apostle John prayed for, just like the reason he wrote this book for us. If you would pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Lord, ultimately, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth that you speak to us through your word, that we are provided understanding through your spirit because your son has given us life. Lord, we are all lost without you. But we only served ourselves, but you have given us the freedom to choose. You have given us the opportunity to follow the light and not the darkness. Lord, give us greater faith and a deeper trust that is rooted in the word today. We love you. We thank you for who you are. And we worship you because you alone are worthy. It's in your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.